Hi, and welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. My name is Adela, and I'm the founder of PBC. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by Gregory Warner, host of NPR's Rough Translation, a podcast about how the things that we're talking about in the United States are being talked about in some other part of the world. Hi, Gregory. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Adela. Thanks for having me. So Rough Translation is a favorite among many Podcast Brunch Club listeners, and we've actually included an episode in a listening list we did last year called Looking for Love. But for those who aren't familiar with the show, can you just give us a little bit of an overview? Sure, sure. We're, well, our tagline is uh, stories from far off places that hit close to home. Our original tagline in season one, if folks have listened back that far, was um, things we're talking about, how they're being talked about in other places. But uh, both of those ideas are sort of around the, the idea of we're going to tell stories that take place in some other, maybe some other country, some other culture that's, uh, but, but it's going to feel close to home. It's going to, it's going to hit you in some way. And it's, it's, it's not that we're specifically telling non-American stories or it's them and us, but just, we're going to take you places, but it's going to feel that it's going to hit you personally. Got it. Yeah. It feels familiar, but it's from like maybe a different perspective. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious about your background and how the idea for the show came about. Sure. So, uh, well, let's see. So in terms of my radio background, so I went to SALT, SALT Institute for Documentary Studies. That was my uh, first taste of radio. I worked in some local, uh, worked at a local station called North Country Public Radio up in very uh, northern New York. And then after that, I went to Afghanistan. Uh, so, which was not as much of a leap as you'd think because uh, I went from sort of one very rural area to another very rural area. And the stories of, uh, actually it was quite similar in terms of the story of the economy as well as the story of uh, loneliness and, 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 and all that. So I spent, I ended up spending about two years on and off in Afghanistan. When was that? Uh, let's see. That was from 2006 to 2008. And then I left uh, for a number of reasons, but also because that period, 2006 to 2008, was, was a, you could do a lot of reporting then that, um, that you just couldn't, that was a lot harder to do after 2008. Uh, kidnappings had started in a massive way. Um, and then I was uh, based after that in in Rwanda and also some in Kenya and Eastern Congo. So I spent some time in, in Africa, uh, again, as freelancer, and then came back to the U.S., started working for Marketplace as a staff reporter, kind of learned later the art of grabbing tape and making a same-day story, which is when I ended up getting the job at NPR as the international correspondent in, um, in Nairobi, Sort of, it is a, you have to use fast twitch muscles, but what's nice about that job is that there was also a lot of potential for storytelling and feature work. Um, and so it was in, in Nairobi, actually, it was, it was actually in Ethiopia that I came up with the idea for this podcast, a country that you've lived in. And uh, it, it came about, I mean, it came out through a number of things, but probably the simplest story is that I had done a story for, for Radiolab on their on their episode called Translation. And um, it was it was an episode about an incident that I watched that I, I was I was actually following the Secretary of State then, John Kerry. He gave a speech 
And this Ethiopian reporter in the room stood up and asked a question. I remember um, this episode, yeah. And yeah, it was, it was like this very brief, I mean, honestly, the whole incident, really the question and the answer, which was at the end of this conference, which, I mean, in the story we talk about how this, they were all vetted questions until this one guy got up because Carrie just decided to be generous in this one moment. Anyway, so this guy asked this question, but it was, it was such a mistranslation around this one word. And because of this one word... Uh, Secretary Kerry seemingly totally misunderstood the question, answered it in this way that was very unsatisfying, and the guy ended up taking a, quite a great risk to, to ask this question on Ethiopian state TV uh, for nothing. But it was this opportunity to learn about this one word, Sirius, which has such a different meaning in East Africa. I was struck because I had done the same story for All Things Considered, and I had done it same day. And of course, it was shorter on All Things Considered, but I had included that moment because it was such a striking moment uh, where this guy asked this question and the meeting of the, you know, this powerful figure and this this uh, this Ethiopian journalist. And um, when it was framed in terms of a news story, in terms of what happened today, there was it was really hard to tell that anecdote. Even though I shoved it in and I found a way to do it, you had to build a box around it, a frame around it that was different than the news. And so the Radiolab version, which it was just a segment, it was like one of their episodes, it's a series of shorter episodes. So I think the whole the whole thing was maybe 11 minutes. The, the, the All Things Considered version was four minutes. So it wasn't so much, it was twice the length, it wasn't so much about length, but it was about framing. And so the the Radiolab episode was all about translation and what can we learn? I mean, this episode was what can we learn from this moment of mistranslation? And that seemed to be a way to me to leverage the work of, again, at NPR, we have 17 foreign bureaus, 17 international bureaus, I should say, all around the world, lots of really smart reporters gathering the news, having conversations every day also bumping into the things that they don't know or that they are surprised they didn't understand. Um, and so focusing on acts of mistranslation seemed like an, an opportunity to learn not only about the place, but also about ourselves in that moment. Very cool. And that's, so that's when the spark for rough translation came after you did that? So that's when the spark came. And I think we, we uh, came up with the, um, with the title fairly quickly. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so it was, yeah, that makes sense. It was the title was there before any pilots were there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I spent a while creating uh, two pilots, two pilots, um, and one of which it, we, we actually aired. It was called The Congo We Listened To in our first season. What do you hope that listeners will get out of the show? So I think, um, you know, when I, was, when I was working on it, I was listening to a lot of startup because Startup by Gimlet is sort of the podcast you go to when you want to start something. Yeah. So it's very satisfying to hear that story. And, and now I listen to it and I, I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm not as engaged as I was when I was in the act of entrepreneuring. Entrepreneuring? Is that? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, I think that that idea of being useful to people, which is a bit of a tall order because, you know, if you're, if you're telling a story about Eastern Congo, it's not exactly like tips and tricks that you may use, you know, on your next trip or from Afghanistan. A lot of listeners are not going to go there, but I still think of this idea of a, a field guide or a toolbox or some kind of, just some kind of set of um, 
I don't know, hacks? Maybe hacks is an inappropriate word, but just ways to get through the world and, and talk to strangers and understand and see around yourself a little bit more. Uh, not in the you should see around yourself kind of way, but wow, this is very fun to see around myself in this moment. So that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, no, you're speaking my language when you said talk to strangers, because we talked a little bit before we started recording that part of what I love about Podcast Brunch Club is, is the idea of talking to strangers and and knowing that stra- it's not stranger danger all the time, you know, that strangers are can be good people too. Yeah, and we, um, you know, I often, I struggle with the idea of a travel show because um, people, I don't know, people I think have a, a particular idea of what a travel show might be and there's a kind of a colonialist heritage to a kind of a travel show and it sort of suggests a kind of traipsing in there with your hat and your safari suit so i think we don't we don't call it a travel show but there's the word international also is a troubling word because it just doesn't sound very fun um international i don't know it sounds like it's going to make you sad or outraged or you're going to feel guilty or something um so these sort of stock set of emotional responses. And when one of the things of traveling, though, is that opportunity to just have a conversation you didn't expect. You fall into a conversation where... So, so that feeling of traveling and having that conversation with somebody, and suddenly it all, it all gets revealed in that moment. That, that's, that's what we aspire to. Yeah. Well, I think you do a great job of it. Thank you. Thanks. I would not have described it as a travel show. That's not that's not where my brain. Nobody goes likes at all. the idea. Travel show. <laughs> In three years, I've never never gotten it. But uh, but the idea of travel is fun. Yeah. So um, I want to take a second to uh, do a couple of community questions. Um, the first one, let me play it for you. Hi, Gregory. My name is Shannon. I started the podcast brunch club chapter in Shanghai. And I'm a big fan of Rough Translation. My favorite all-time episode is American Surrogate, and the recent follow-up was great. So my question is your process for picking and developing the topics and stories. And more specifically, I wanted to know if your team is very cross-cultural, and if not, how you handle getting a diverse perspective when you're thinking about topics and also how you develop the stories. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So I um, I, I think that uh, I've always said that, you know, as coming from as a correspondent to now my, well, I used to up until COVID-19, I was in a cubicle in New York. Now I'm just in my closet in New York. But um, so when you're, when you're a correspondent and you're in the field and you're having all kinds of conversations, um, you know, the, the stories, you just, you talk to different people and, and the stories kind of emerge from your conversations with a lot of diverse people. Obviously I was, I was based in Nairobi. Um, but anywhere I would go, I would feel that I was encountering perspectives that were diverse, that were different than my own. Um, and I also, I should not, I really appreciate the caller sort of defining diversity in a broader sense, which is kind of also about where you're from and what your perspective is. But, um, but then I came back to New York and I had a real problem because, um, uh, we quickly dro- we quickly ran through the stories that, <laughs> that I had reported out, and so then we had to we we definitely I definitely didn't want a show where we would come up with the stories in New York or in D.C. and think about the things that we were interested in and go find that around the world. I, I think that that is such the 
that often, and as a correspondent who's been on the other side of that, that, that can be really frustrating. Um, so what we started to do was reach out to folks who were based in different places. Um, and what's been really nice is more that that relationship with the international desk and NPR has really developed. So now I have regular calls with them and uh, we just talk about what we're seeing on the ground. Uh, but I will say that it's still always a challenge uh, to be kind of when you're having a show about culture, there's so many potential minefields because fundamentally people don't think of themselves as, I mean, people don't want to represent their culture. They're, 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 they're themselves. Um, and, uh, or so, so, you know, you might, somebody said to me, um, you know, a 19 year old Kenyan has more in common with a 19 year old American than with a 42 year old Kenyan mm-hmm. in terms of his or her outlook on life. And so there's, uh, there's a way in which if we're saying, oh, thanks for speaking and being the, the Kenyan person or, or representing the Kenyan thinking on this, that's definitely not what, where we go with the show. Uh, well, the way I think of culture or our storytelling is that whenever, whatever we're doing, we are pushing against all kinds of forces. Now, you know, some are economic, some are behavioral psychology forces. That's not our show. Other forces are societal or cultural. And we all feel those forces in different ways. So I just, what we're trying to do at Rough Translation is figure out a set of questions or a set of tools to just ask people sort of what are they pushing against? What are they informed by? What's, what's just influencing them? Sometimes it's the dominant culture in their area. Sometimes it's not. Um, but whatever it is, it's, it's sort of these invisible forces that do, that do play on us. Um, but anyway, so we always do share our stories with... Um, with people from the culture, from that area, um, and usually more than one, so that, so we just get a sense of how this story is going to land, and and the story always really changes as a result. So, this is that that's a crucial part of our edit process. Very cool. I'm gonna save some of the other questions for a little bit later. I want to dig in a little bit on um, on a couple of the more recent episodes that you've done. So, in particular, yeah. Hotel Corona really struck me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, I'll I'll let you kind of describe it, but um, but it really struck me. And then the American surrogate, which is what Shannon just referred to, also you did a follow up on that. So can you just give give our listeners a brief overview of those episodes? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, happy to. So Hotel Corona is uh, a real place. It's a hotel, although it's it's now closed um, from its former purpose. But it was a a hotel, the Dan Hotel in Jerusalem that was used by the government, the Israeli government, to house patients with COVID-19, fairly mild symptoms. So they would come out of the hospital, but while they were still contagious, they would stay in the hotel. As what ended up happening was, since it was one of the first that opened, it ended up having a very, very diverse set of guests slash patients, uh, Arabs, Jews, Palestinians, but within Jews, you had secular Jews, Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, all the different sort of lines of, of um, separation within Israel. And they all had to find a way to live together. And they all, fortunately for us and for the rest of Israel, filmed themselves doing it. So there was just a ton of Instagram and other media that they had created. And then they became a kind of sensation within Israel. So Israelis would regularly tune in to what became like the Hotel Corona show 
um, and they were featured on the news. And one moment, I don't even think we used this in the podcast, but there was a moment where they filmed themselves watching themselves on the Israeli news using footage that they had filmed. So it was just, it was very meta. And and then for Israelis watching this, it was like a real-time social experiment of sorts where they were watching people who at least were told uh, don't get along or have uh, intractable differences who were seemingly getting along incredibly well. So we profiled a couple of different guests of the hotels, including the reservation manager, Baruch. Mm-hmm. And then um, American Surrogate 30 Months Later was a follow-up to a previous episode that you had done. Yes. Uh, American Surrogate was one of the first episodes that we did. It was on our season one, uh, the original. And American Surrogate really started with an idea that, or, or th- there, there, was, there was a trend at that time where we think of international surrogacy as something that takes place where Americans are hiring a, a woman in a poor country to have their baby. That's sort of the stereotype. So we were struck by this growing trend of Chinese uh, uh, mothers or Chinese families asking an American woman or hiring an American woman to have their baby to be their surrogate. So we found this woman who fit that bill, but honestly, we we just had no idea anything would happen. She just was having a baby for this Chinese woman. So there wasn't really any story there. We just said, can we follow you and talk to you along the way? So it was like this completely blind, it was just this nine month or like, I think we started uh, three weeks in, so it was about an eight month reporting process of just and then so much stuff. I think I said in the in the redo, but so much stuff happened, uh, so much drama and so much um, so much cultural kind of questions and mistranslations came out. So, uh, and we we were there for it. Our our reporter Marianne McCune, as well as Jess Jang, who co-reported that. And then the recent follow up um, was that planned, or did you do that because of coronavirus and you wanted to see how that had impacted the French? Uh, no, you know that was one of those stories that we always planned to follow up. It, it it particularly is one of the stories that people have asked about, um, and we left it on such a cliffhanger, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't want to reveal for folks, but it leaves on a <laughs> yes. cliffhanger. So just to, to sort of answer some of those questions, um, the. And the challenging thing with um, with following up too is that there's still some anonymity necessary for that story even now, um, so we had to be careful about that. But um, and and then we realized that that in effect, in fact, it ended up being a kind of coronavirus update. The, the challenge there was the pandemic was shaping things so quickly that we did an update, but then we had to do an update to the update before we actually aired it, because in that period of time the virus or the pandemic had gotten from China to to the U.S. and things in the U.S. looked really different. Right. Yeah. Every day. It feels like a... Every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so clearly you do follow-ups. So I guess my question to link the two episodes is, do you plan to do a follow-up on Hotel Corona? Because there, there are a couple of people in that episode that I really want to follow and hear back from, especially Aisha. Yeah, no, no. I w- I would love to know w- what ends up happening with Aisha and and honestly, actually, we thought about this. We we struggled to how to end that story because we we actually did speak to Noam, one of the characters, after she got out. Mm-hmm. But we realized that 
you know, if we spoke to her after she got out, then we really should speak to Aisha after she gets out. And then we should find out, well, wait, after they get out for a few weeks, then we'll find out. It's one of those stories that has no ending. I mean, all stories are like that. But if we could just end it when they leave the hotel, then it could be very film-like. Like they just walk out the doors and it's like one of those open endings. You don't know what'll happen. So that was um, the feeling of, of sort of unfinishedness you have at the end. It was actually on purpose because we needed to end it somewhere. Yeah. Um, so has there been any reaction to Hotel Corona from listeners? Did you get any listener feedback? I mean, Hotel Corona has been yeah, very well liked. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, people have said that they really appreciated having a story like that in in a time of coronavirus. It's an uplifting story. It's about people who are who the the virus is actually providing them with. Uh, insight into their lives. And and I think what's also striking, of, of course, about it and was striking for the Israelis watching it at the time was that here are people who are actually living a more normal life that those who are outside the walls, who are not infected, cannot live. So they were able to hug each other and, and touch and do Zumba and, and sunbathe and get close. And so it wasn't just about sort of, I don't know, Jews and Palestinians getting together. We can talk about how we sort of struggle with that storyline. But but it, I think it was also just people getting to get together and being surprised at that. Yeah. And when we were talking earlier, you mentioned there was even a, a, a further sort of underlying tension that maybe wasn't as you weren't, you were intentionally trying to not make it very obvious, but between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic faction of of Jewish people, I don't know how many how much uh, our listeners know about that, but I'll just give a brief a brief overview. Sephardic are from like they're just the sort of ancestry is from um, the Middle East, and then um, Ashkenazi is from Eastern Europe, um, and there's just very different cultures and attitudes. Yes, and so Noam, who's the Israeli character or the Israeli guest that we profile, so she's Iranian, and so. She is uh, Mizrahi, and so then, as she so she feels she has a lot of opinions about you know whether the lines between Ashkenazi and Sephardic, or whether the lines between Palestinians and Israelis. I mean, there's a lot of lines of conflict, and once you keep going, and we even almost talk about that, where we talk about the the Arab from the north and the Arab from the south, and the ultra orthodox and the orthodox. Um, but I think I think honestly, one of our struggles with that story, or, or one of the one of the things we talked about a lot was how to how to sort of not you know oftentimes i think you're trying to make stories feel big and feel weighty um but we almost were really trying to do the opposite with that story because uh we didn't want it to feel like there was some i don't know some peace in the Middle East kind of experience that was sort of like a model for how people could be elsewhere. Because I think the conditions within the hotel are so different and so unique. Anyway, I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's a universal experience that ends up happening. There were people are stuck in the same room together and they get along. 
And I think reducing people down to their identities and saying, wow, you're Palestinian, you're Israeli, and you still got along. It actually denies the fact that we're all human beings and we find a way to get along. And it also doesn't deny that after we leave, things are going to still be unequal. So, so a narrative of getting along was actually not the narrative, although it's very subtle, but in a way, everybody's surprise that they were getting along was the story. Because it's when people are surprised that they are getting along or Israelis watching it are surprised that they learn something about themselves. Um, and so, so, yeah, so we talked about that a lot and how to end it and choices we made about who to profile. I mean, another aspect of that is, is that the two characters we profile, an easy way to do the story would be to get some sort of, I don't know, far right... Israeli who sort of like wants settlements, who think some certain ways about Palestinians and then have them realize, oh my God, people are people too. And I I don't know, that just seemed to be also weighing way too much in the power of Hotel Corona. And I was I was actually glad that the characters themselves are not stereotypical. They're um they're sort of peace loving characters anyway. And the fact that these peace loving characters are still themselves surprised that everybody's getting along, it's actually kind of sad. It really is sad, and it was sad for them, frankly. Uh, so that's what we wanted to truly, really focus in on. Yeah, yeah. There was a part where I know Noam was talking about how she posted something on Instagram and was just looking at all the comments, just kind of waiting for that like mean trolly comment. And she was just kind of, you know, she anticipated it and it wasn't there. And she was so surprised. And there were a couple of times in the episode where she was like, OK, here's where it's going to, you know, here's where the fairy tale ends. You know, there there are a couple points in that story where, you know, she she kind of thought, OK, this is where the sh- other shoe drops, you know, and and it didn't. And it surprised her. So we tried not to give any spoilers here, but uh, we highly, highly, I highly, highly recommend it to everybody. Um, it was an excellent, excellent episode. And I also appreciate the recent one that you did the other day. Um, I'll just give a little shout out to it about France and masks and face coverings and sort of all of the kind of cultural stuff that comes into play, you know, with the hijab and and the and the ban on face coverings in France, and and how it relates to Muslims who have always covered their face but aren't allowed to. It's a really really interesting episode. So is this is this? I mean, are you focusing on coronavirus for the foreseeable future, or is this just um, you know just as they come? So no no yeah. I mean, so we um, obviously the coronavirus has been a, a major pivot for us, but. I mean, it's interesting because we started the show with a thesis, right, that we're all connected. We're all kind of going through similar things. Uh, I, You know, some of the way in which international news is sometimes framed is is this sense of, of like, wow, can you imagine what's going on in that country? You know, that's so sad or so different. And, uh, and uh, I've felt that that's an inaccurate way of sort of seeing the world and not exactly the best sort of not not my experience and and not even the way to learn from things that are happening um but right now it's like the thesis is unfortunately proven because people are very much going through the same thing but interacting with it you know there was the response to by country by country to the pandemic is so different so what can we learn from that um so i think that the pandemic has revealed a lot about how we interact with each other that um that is our that is where we where we highlight. So that plus um, all our plans for the fall season were suddenly thrown thrown 
thrown out. So, um, so yeah, so we just jumped in and started talking to our correspondents and started uh, talking to our sources and seeing what we could say about this moment. And uh, we sort of shifted to an every two week model as opposed to seasonal. Because again, it just didn't make any sense to sit around and think about a fall season. We we just wanted to start telling stories, and yeah, and I think the Nikab uh, from Nikab to N ninety five story that you that you highlight, you know, it's it's interesting to have been watching a little bit of the response on on Twitter, which again is not necessarily representative, but I noticed that some people reacting to the headline saying saying in effect, um, how could you compare? a niqab, which is a face covering, a Muslim face covering, to a mask, which is worn for a totally different reason. And actually, yes, that is true. They are nothing to do with each other until they're, in terms of their stories, their cultures. And yet what the story is about is how women at the heart of this culture war feel about this moment. And that was what was so surprising and I thought worth doing the story about it is that uh, they feel that their experience as women who cover, who are now being told finally to cover, is so different. And we can, that reveals a ton about how, how we are with each other. So that's why we did that story. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to look at sort of how, how, how COVID-19 is really changing culture. And, and it's interesting to think about how it's going to change it you know, for the first, not just for the sort of short and medium term, but the long term future. And just in thinking about these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I, it's funny, because I was thinking about your question as to whether we're going to follow up with folks. And um, it is, it is funny. I don't know how you feel, but it's, when you do these stories, you do feel like you're, at least you want to feel a little bit like you're adding to the family of people <laughs> that that the listeners sort of know. And even uh, Dia Hadid, the reporter, one of the correspondents on that story, it's not the first time she's been on a show. She also did the our episode about Austenistan, which is about Jane Austen fans in, in Pakistan. And it's not even the first time she's mentioned her husband, Emmanuel, who's <laughs> yet again come on this show without actually without actually his voice being heard. But uh, so I almost feel, and this is probably only in my mind, I almost feel like people already know he's a Jane Austen fan and now get to hear his feelings about this. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do hope that we can have a more regular cast of characters and and recurrent guests. I mean, that's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, all right, let's take another question from the community. Hi, Gregory. My name is Mila Tan, and I am a member of the podcast uh, Brunch Club in Shanghai. So my question to you and for the rest of the Rough Translation group is, has the podcast found a way to develop contacts within schools and other educational services, especially around the world during this time, during the COVID um, situation, uh, to help students who are doing classes online because you have great stories that could help students who are struggling with reading or finding ways of reflecting on what's going on in the world. So I'd like to know if um, Rough Translation is working with uh, developing materials, curriculum, lesson plans, or if um, schools have worked with your team to develop these ideas. Thanks. And um, I love rough translation. I've been listening to it uh, since season one. Uh, it's definitely been one that I've told friends about over and over again. So thank you so much for all the work you do. Well, thank you. Thanks for the question. And thanks. Um, 
So I, I periodically get emails from professors who are using an episode in, in a class, not necessarily a journalism class, uh, could be an anthropology class, um, and sometimes I speak to those classes, but we have not done anything at the high school or secondary school level, so, I, and I would love to. So, yeah, and it's just, it's just been a question of sort of resources and availability, but um, I know that other podcasts have started to do that. I was, I was even thinking we should have a segment of the site where we say this is kid-friendly, stuff and and because you know we're all at home listening to podcasts perhaps with our children um but yes no i i actually love the opportunity to to curate that because to me it's it would it would feed back very well you know to have uh, those folks also asking questions yeah yeah i mean so early on in podcast brunch club actually i was approached by a teacher at the high school level who wanted to start a chapter in her classroom she had a sociology class for juniors and seniors and she started a, a podcast brunch club chapter with her classroom. So she just sort of had them listen and then as a way to kind of create dialogue and stuff. So I could see it being, um, you know, just if you could develop short, I don't know, playlists with questions and, you know, make it available for teachers. So it's sort of a plug and play option for them to just use in their classrooms. I think teachers, especially now and even parents, right, because a lot of the homeschooling is happening. I think they'd appreciate it. So not to not to add more work to your to your plate, which I'm sure is already full, but <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's something we really would want to do. I mean, especially since, uh, yeah, I think the spirit of what you're doing is, is about listening as a collective, you know, community act. Yeah. And it's something you want to do in a class and have that discussion. I mean, there's nothing I like to do more when I listen to something than discuss it, but yet I'm, I'm just discussing it with myself. <laughs> so um, anyway, it's a continuation of that impulse, but I, I like it. Our next episode uh, actually is about, well, it may, may probably be about parents, parenting in the pandemic, so it's got an educational piece. Okay, let's listen to another one. My name is Sarah, and I'm the leader of the PBC chapter in Baltimore and a longtime fan of Rough Translation. I was just wondering if there's anything you can share with us about future directions the show might go in, upcoming seasons, or possible projects. Thanks. Yeah, sure. I'd uh, love to. So we are um, we are working now on, on a couple of different stories about sort of kind of coronavirus and how we, what, again, you know, going different countries and how we, how, we, how we sort of relate to each other through that. But we also have all this non- COVID-19 reporting, and we're trying to wait, figure out the best time to, to bring that in. Um, there are certain stories, I don't know, you know, we we're, it's, it's, it's hard to know where people's heads are. It's, and figuring out, I mean, I get, I get giving them something on topic, even if it's light, you know, something on COVID. I get giving them something truly escapist, um, but figuring out, I don't know, there's, there's, there's that middle ground where you're telling a hard story, a complex story that's not about the things that we're all worrying about now. And um, yeah, I wonder if there's the bandwidth uh, to to lend that that empathy. I mean, you know, it, we we again we try in our show not to ask a ton mm-hmm. of the listener. I mean, give us your ears. We will try to entertain you. We're not asking you to empathize without us deserving it. But, um, to, but yeah, so it's figuring that out. And actually, we were just editing a story today, which is not international. It's based in the U.S. And it's about, because there's a lot of rough translations that happen within the United States as well. I'd actually be curious if I can ask a question to the PBC, uh, PBC chapters, 
whether uh, people feel that international stories are sort of what they turn to Rough Translation for. Hmm. We've done a couple which have been domestic, um, but um, yeah, I'm just curious if they would feel like, well, there's so few international stories on other podcasts, so it kind of lets them down if it's domestic or if it feels uh, like just as valid. So I'll answer for myself. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'll post the question to our, our community. I'll either Thanks. post your audio question or I'll, I'll just, I'll post it and I'll, I'll try and get you some answers. Um, I personally, I, I do like the international aspect of it. I am somebody who has traveled a lot in my life and I think it's really important you know, if, if I had my way, I think every high schooler would leave the country for six months or at the very least, every every college student would leave the country for six, at least six months. Yeah. So I think I think rough translation is a nice opportunity to get those perspectives potentially without, you know, all the the travel and the costs and the, all that. But um, so I do appreciate the international aspect of it. But it's not something that I would be disappointed to hear if I was to hear, you know, a, a a story about something taking place in the United States. So that that's that's my answer. I can't speak for everybody, mm-hmm. but I will certainly pose it and get you some. Yeah. Try and get you some. Well, answers. it sounds like it's a ratio for you. Like an occasional domestic story wouldn't bother you, but it would feel. Yeah, it's just what I expect. I think that's the that's the other thing. It's just like that. I'm so used to hearing international stories from Rough, rough Translation, and it and and so many of the podcasts that I listen to already do. It's so U.S. centric anyway, and that's yeah. actually a really big challenge for Podcast Brunch Club because we do have 80 chapters all over the world. We have six, we're you know on six continents, and and when we put together playlists. I try as, you know, I'm not the one curating every month, um, I tr- but but I still try to provide guidance. And I always try to tell the person who's curating, you know, always remember that, you know, we've got groups all over the, the world. And while I understand that a lot of podcasts are coming out of the United States and probably the, the lion's share are, uh, we still have to make sure that not every single episode is just focused on the United States. You know, whether it, it doesn't matter to me where it comes from, you know, whether it's like, you know, produced in the United States, but what it's about is what matters to me. And so making sure that we're representing and trying to provide different perspectives. So um, so rough translation is the same way for me in my own podcast queue of like that nice little escape from the United States. So that's the only reason that I would say that is the, like, the ratio thing. It's just that's what I sort of expect. And, and that's sort of my impression of rough translation. So if all of a sudden, like you are only focusing on U.S. stories, I would probably be like a little bit lost without at least without like maybe potentially you providing some context and, you know, upfront about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Um. Well, so I want to start to wrap up. We've I've taken up a lot of your time, but um, my we always ask our, our guests um, just because, you know, Podcast Brunch Club is all about sharing our podcast recommendations with each other. What are your pod? Do you have any podcast recommendations for us? So my recommendation for the Podcast Brunch Club is uh, a podcast that is not in season anymore, but I, I wish it would come back. So this is maybe my attempt to, to get it back. It's Uncivil. You know this one from Gimlet. And uh, I think what I love about that uh, series, which is about the Civil War, is it takes the territory that you would you just think has surely already been told so many times and 
even even a, a new history of it and even a more informed history of it has been told you think and yet they are finding and this is this this is the thing i also aspire to do is they are finding the great 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 grandchildren of these famous or soon to be these these people these legends of the of the civil war who who themselves live with this experience and want to tell this story so it's told through amateur historians who are themselves the the um the descendants of the of the original uh, civil war uh, figures and that is such good reporting that is so hard to cast that so not only is it a beautifully told extremely informative uh podcast but i just i so appreciate how much how many people you need to talk to in order to find the one great, 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 great grandson who's going to tell you that story and is ready to take you on that boat trip. And podcasts are often, uh, we often don't have the time for the reporting. And, um, and that's one that's a little deceptive because, uh, because it's often one character, but it's the right one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. I will add that to the show notes so that people can can go and check it out. Um the final final question is just how can people follow you? Sure. So uh, you can follow the show at Roughly. I'm uh, on Twitter. I'm at Radio Grego. Um, and that's uh, that's the one I probably use. I also have an uh, Instagram handle, Radio Grego. It's not used as much. Yeah, I think, honestly, Twitter is the most actively used. So that's the best place to follow us. That's, that's how I connected with you. So I will, yeah, that's the best way. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, and we'll try and get you some answers for some of your questions. Yeah. I'm so curious. And honestly, we, um, we are also, I mean, I just, I love that you have all these chapters around the world. It's well, very you're always welcome to join any, any one of them. We have one in New York, so I'm sure they'd well, love to I, see you. <laughs> I am, I am kind of just curious about how, how the different chapters make it their own. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just very curious about that. Yeah. And the podcast cultures in different places. It's it is actually really fascinating, you know. So it's def there's definitely are different cultures, you know, like our New York City chapter does a potluck at somebody's house at somebody's apartment. Well, not now, obviously. But yeah, I was when I heard that, I was shocked. I was I, of all of the chapters. <laughs> Why are you shocked by potluck? <laughs> well, I'm shocked <laughs> that like well, because not the potluck part, it's the at the person's house part where they're inviting sort of strangers into their home. And hmm. I, I guess there's enough of right, a... Right, but they're like, they're vetted because if they like that podcast, they must be good. That's true, right? <laughs> there, there's, I mean, I guess... There's the, something dangerous about that. Like, there's something about like, oh, you like that podcast too? I trust you implicitly. Totally. Like, that just does not seem like good judgment to me. <laughs> and yet, I don't know. If you know that a person spent 42 minutes with that show... That's true, that's true. And, and like wants to get together some. and talk about it and not murder me. I don't know, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, they do they do that. So and they're, they're really like awesome about it. And they get great turnouts. And I think our Cleveland chapter does that, too. Um, and then some of our chapters, you know, meet for happy hour and some of them will meet for brunch and some of them will meet, you know, at cafes or, they'll, you know, it's just sort of every every city is so different. And that's why it's just like the model has worked out really nicely because we have local chapter leaders and those chapter leaders, I'm not, I don't seek them out. You know, I'm not going and trying to recruit people to start a chapter in, you know, X city. I just wait for people to come to me and say, you know, I noticed that there's not 
a podcast brunch club chapter in my city, like, how can we get this started? I'm like, oh, let's do it. And, you know, if you want to take the reins, then, you know, you know your city best. And that's how it happens. So, but yeah, I mean, honestly, Gregory, we would love to have you at our New York City chapter, or any of our chapter meetings, if you're yeah. ever traveling. We we did an episode on um, on failure uh, around the world. <laughs> and um, it was a similar sort of thing where they called it fuck up nights. Oh, oh yeah. I've I mean I've I'm pretty sure I've listened to every single episode of Rough Translation, but you always I always have to get my memory jogged. Yeah. And, I looked and it up, it I think. It was a similar thing where they came up with an idea like, oh sure, we're gonna just tell our biggest fuck up and it just everybody wanted to start a chapter everywhere. Yeah. I <laughs> so and I think that prompted me because I was like, Oh, that sounds like a model that's similar to ours. I want to look into what they're doing because it's, and I've always said this too, because just the, the whole idea about it is like, I think that we have like this weird fear in our culture about failure and that it's like, so it's so taboo. It's such a bad thing to do. And I honestly don't think that you would ever learn anything if you didn't fail and that we need to actually encourage failure and, and say that to kids that it's okay. And it's, it's actually kind of like you're not taking a risk if you're not failing kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I love, yeah, I love that idea. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we would love to have you, but again, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's really great. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening and being a part of the podcast brunch club community. Do you have any thoughts on our discussion this month? send a message or voice memo to podcast at podcastbrunchclub.com. PBC is a passion project and we rely on support from our global community to continue bringing people together in person and online. So if you feel like PBC has contributed to your life in any way, please consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation. Go to podcastbrunchclub.com support for more information. If you're interested in becoming an organizational partner, go to podcastbrunchclub.com slash sponsors. A quick thanks to our early partners, Podbean. For one free month of podcast hosting, go to podbean.com slash PBC. Podchaser, the IMDB of podcasts. Listen Notes, a podcast search engine. Critical Frequency, the podcast network for everyone else. The Venn Media, a weekly newsletter for curious minds and Lentigua Williams & Company Podcast Network, telling stories in the seams of society. Finally, some credits for this episode. Katie DeFiori is our audio editor. Music is from Chad Crouch and Miss Ayal Ghana, downloaded from Free Music Archive. I'm Adela, founder of Podcast Brunch Club, and as always, thanks and happy listening. <laughs>